Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. And... Man, oh, he's a Tony Micheletti's man. Go and sing for you. Sing for me, or don't, don't sing for me, don't sing for me, Argentina. Don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. What voice is that? It is the big broadcast. It is coast to coast. It is border to border. It is tune in. iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher. Brand new Jiggy Jaguar app available in the App Store. JiggyJaguar.us. We are going to get in touch with Tony Micheletti's. That guy. Mr. Tony Micheletti's. Hello. I believe that's Tony. How are you, sir? It's James Lowe calling you for your radio interview. How are you? I'm good, James. How are you? Pretty good, actually. We have gotten a lot of requests to get you back on the program, and I uh, wanted to make sure we made everybody uh, happy by getting you back on. You are you were amazing the last time we had you Thank on, you, uh, telling us a lot of the inside scoop and a lot of the uh, good stories out there. So... Uh, I hope you got some good stories for us today, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try something else if I'm repeating myself. You know, it's my age. <laughs> no, um, anytime, Jay, you can call me. You can call me direct. You've got my number. So anytime you've got a story and you want to do things in the future, just holler out. You know, you don't have fantastic, to. Fantastic, fantastic. Tony Tony Micheletti's with us today. He joins us live here in our big broadcast, and uh, he is absolutely amazing. And uh, he's with us today. His website, TonyMicheletti's.com. That's T-O-N-Y-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-I-D-E-S.com. We'll have it on our website, JiggyJaguar.com as well. And uh, today, how to become a music superstar. And uh, Tony Micheletti's, when he was on with us the last time, we talked about him promoting bands such as R.E.M., U2. Uh, he's a music industry professional. He's with us today here on our big program. He's got an all-new book coming out, Let the Good Times Roll, and uh, he's with us today. Now, um, Tony, let's talk about, it seems like everybody and their brother wants to be a superstar. They they want to do the American Idol. They want to do the Nashville star. There are all these different things. Things, their YouTube sensations, all this stuff. Tell us a little bit about what you believe and what you've seen work about becoming a music superstar because you're a music music industry professional, former music promoter, all these things. Tony, you're still there, my friend. Can you hear me? I'm here. You cracked okay. up a bit then. Not, not, not a problem. I was oh. just trying to get your advice on what to be to become a uh, music professional, my friend. Oh, if it was that easy, eh? Um, well, basically, I'm a great believer in in a lot of the uh, the basic ingredients never changing over the years. If you go back 50 years to the to the days of the Pink Floyds and the Led Zeppelins and the Bob Dylans, they were all kind of in the business of artist development. Um, which is what I used to enjoy most with record companies, the ability to work with artists in the very early stages and watch them blossom and grow 
um, and then get better at what they're doing and you follow that progress and, and, you know, put them in front of the right people at the right times and stuff. But it's a very changed business now since the internet and since the, the record companies have kind of all but become two or three companies. And, um, you know, they're really just... Um, they're really just marketing companies now. They're not, they're not kind of the development people that they used to be because a lot of the music people aren't running them now. They're run by accountants and lawyers, basically, James. We've, we've got Tony Micheletti's with us today. Now, uh, you helped get U2 uh, on the radio. You, you, helped them make, you helped make them a big deal. Um, tell me about radio success nowadays. How, how, how can bands do that, make that work? Well, radio's like everything else in in the in the loosely termed music business because everybody's out to 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 have to satisfy whether it's advertisers or or corporate companies who are the investors in record companies and stuff so the days of um of having to i mean we live in, a, in an age of instant gratification if you look at the bands that get created through the american idols of the world and and the voices and things i mean they're after like quick success so they can kind of cash in and then move on to the next thing but if you look at i mean you two is a great case study james because they um you know they 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 were just like they had a lot of ambition and they had something about them but you know like bono's voice and adam's bass playing and and the quality of the material and stuff naturally progressed as you would expect it to because in the early days of of kind of rock and roll or whatever you want to call it I mean, bands tended to kind of break through their third album, whereas nobody now would give you the option of releasing an album if you didn't have any success with singles. But getting back to your question about radio is, when I used to get a record on the radio, you used to have a good chance of having a hit because it would be played, you know, throughout the day and stuff. And you would have, in, in the UK where I was operating, you'd have like, you know, I used to have like probably 12 to 15 what I used to call media tastemakers, kind of... Um, heads of music at radio station who if they went with a record i was promoting early um i had great confidence in that record being the hit because they would pick up on whether it was a natalie brulia single um even you know first singles by first artists it's easy to play follow-ups from you know nowadays the Katy perry's and the adele's and stuff that's proving nothing but there's, there's a lot more safety now in in what people play in radio and it's very hard for um, a new band to create any amount of awareness through radio. They have to do it themselves pretty much through building a, a solid core fan base through social media. It, it is uh, Tony Micheletti's. He's with us today here on iHeartRadio and AMFM247.com. Uh, he joins us today. He is uh, a, a, a heck of a guy, and uh, I am so glad we were able to get him back on with us today. Now, you, you talk social media. That, that seems to be the... Uh, the the hidden gem basically of uh, of marketing. Tell us a little bit about, more about this and your views on this whole thing. On social media, yes, yes. Tell us all about it, my man. Well, basically, if we if we again go back to you two, when I was working with you two in the early days, we're talking like nineteen eighty. I mean, they'd be playing to regular between to thirty and fifty people on average at, at every little dive bar or whatever club that they could get gigs at as they as they as they built a solid core fan base of people who came to see them, who liked them, who went back and told their friends and those thirty and fifty soon became seventy, eighty, a hundred, and of course the rest is history. But what would happen every night, James, is is after they'd done um their set They'd go backstage and they'd be pouring with sweat, obviously, because these were kind of dingy little places. 
And then they'd come out afterwards and meet every single person that wanted to meet them. And they'd stand there and talk to them for as long as those people wanted to talk to them. And then they'd get in a van, you know, with the tour manager driving, with the equipment in the back, and they're driving four hours in the pouring rain to the next gig for me to get them out and take them into what tiny little show I could get them on, which went out at midnight on a Tuesday or something, you know, to just really try and get their voices heard and create an awareness for them. Um, whereas nowadays, I mean, you can go away from a show and you can go back to your hotel room, your motel room, whatever. You can be in the car traveling to the next show or anything, and you can get on social media and you can reach out and Twitter and Facebook and all these things, and you can make, say, 12 fans in America. Don't forget this is global now. When you two used to come out and meet the people, if it was a gig in Manchester or Birmingham or London, you'd only be talking to the people in that city who'd been to see you. Now, you can reach out and, and, and reach out to a global audience. So you can reach out and make, say, 15 girl fans in Japan. Go to bed and wake up and you've got 100. Because they've been virally reaching out to their people and say, hey, I met this singer and this band, you know, he, he's, he sent me texts last night, he sent me things on um, Twitter feeds and stuff. And they become your voice. So social media is so, so important at the expense of, of uh, a lot of the things that were just... I mean, you have so many ways to to go about um, getting, like, fans. And I think that interaction between your audience is vitally important. It's not about how many likes you get on your Facebook page. I mean, that's ridiculous. People, that's more kind of there to pamper their egos. But when you get genuine interaction with your fans, those are the people that kind of will turn up at a show and, and, and you know, and rally around in your absence and constantly um, be talking about them because that's their kind of closest to fame that, that those people get. That they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, feel a, a closeness to them that, that, you know, probably wasn't there in the past. We've got Tony Micheletti's joining us today here in our broadcast, Coast to Coast, Border to Border on iHeartRadio, AMFM247.com. And, uh, Tony, you, you, you mentioned, uh, going up and down the highways and the byways trying to get these, trying to get bands like you two and, and, and things, gigs. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the different things that you had to do to, to, to get some of these guys on, on, on radio or on stage and just trying to get the exposure out there. Well, it's funny, actually, if you ever want a good read, um, there's, um, oh my God, the name escapes me. Um, the Hitman, which is a great book, which is about the, uh, the whole kind of, payola thing in the 50s and 60s in america where they would employ like mafia people to go around i mean they'd be traveling around in in cars to kind of get records on the radio whatever it took you know um but <laughs> sadly i didn't have that opportunity mine was basically like any guy trying to kind of make it in their particular profession was just building relationships because people didn't used to play my records james because they liked me they used to listen to them because they respected me so i would always be very careful about the artists that i represented because at the end of the day i would have to put my name and my sticker and my reputation at stake um and i wanted it to get in front of a head of music and to think well if tony's promoting it it's got to be worth a listen whether or not it goes on the playlist is one thing so I would, I would always be very kind of, um, you know, the expense of turning down potentially financially better deals, but not wanting to to do something. I genuinely didn't feel that I could, um, I could really do something with it. it. Didn't mean that to be in my record collection. It just meant that I saw that there was an opportunity to get them some exposure. Uh, and back in those days, we're talking kind of um, 80s, 90s into the new millennium and something before I came out 
to the States, it was really a case of, you had specialist radio shows, so you could build bands that were loosely termed rock acts, like U2, through um, incredibly powerful specialist radio shows, where they had a core base of listeners who really went out and bought the records that they heard on the radio. Because I actually did a radio show myself for 12 and a half years in the UK. And I was interviewing people like R.E.M. and, uh, you know, and Brian Ferry and Bowie and people like that as they came through playing their dates and stuff. And I had like a reach of fifty to 60,000 people. And it was a great position to be in because I was predominantly a music fan. And you could never get that many people in your lounge to turn them on to music. But when you had the power of a vehicle like a radio show, I would go into the record store in the center of Manchester the next day that... that kind of specialized in selling that type of stuff and see records physically move the next day after i played them which which really satisfied me because you kind of made an impact on people but um you know i'm sounding very sentimental now. <laughs> it's tony micheletti's he's with us today <laughs> here in our broadcast and uh coast to coast border to border tune in itunes radio loyalty and uh he joins us live talking a, a little bit about his background and kind of what it takes to be a music superstar and uh you know, being being able to interview and, and talk to a lot of these folks and get some of these records broke and and, and different things. Uh, talk about the impact you had on people and everything. The impact I had on artists. Yes, yes. Well, I think basically, like I was saying then, James. I mean, it's really important. I would like to meet everybody that I was going to be working with. So before I started working with you two, I met the band and I met the manager. And we sat down, and you get a feel for them. And you, because the thing is that they've got to have more than talent. I mean, they have to be able to. I'm, I'm going to take a guy into a radio station or a band into a radio station if they can't string a sentence together, and then have the <laughs> DJ phone them up and saying, "What a bunch of jerks they were," because that makes it more difficult for me to get the record on the radio. So I would always kind of sit down and find out what they were looking for, and, and let them know what I did. So that, you know, the thing is, I, mean, I used to say to them that, listen, if I can't get arrested with this record, you'll be the first to know. Because I think it's crucially important to be totally well, honest yeah, with these people. Yeah. Because if, if you're telling them that something's happening and it's not, then the record company might spend more money on marketing. Don't yep. The bands have got to yep. pay this back. The record companies are only a, a bank at the end of the day. Yes. Um, so really, you build that trust with them. So you kind of grow with them at what you're doing. And then... When you tell them that you've got something for them to do, it's enough that they respect you enough to think, well, if he thinks I should do it, I should do it. So that was great for me because in situations like this, if you want somebody on your show, you want to be able to get them. So for me, I could go to people with new artists that I was representing off the back of some of the success stories that I'd had. And then I'd say, hey, I've got something I think you'll like. They would then go away and listen to it. And then I'd get a yay or an A. Well, if I could immediately go back to a record company and a manager and an act telling them they like it or they don't like it, then they don't like, dislike it because of me. They've heard it because of me, and they give a genuine feedback. And you've got to remember in, in those days, James, I mean, radio stations have station sounds. I mean, a lot of stations nowadays are, are top 40 and play a lot of the same similar stuff for other oh, reasons yeah. to satisfy yeah. the advertisers and stuff. But you know, we're talking 30, 40 years ago nearly. I mean, I'm sure the car business has changed since then, so I only know <laughs> what I know. Um, but, but, awesome. but I do love this. I, I, I do have a really fond affection for what I was able to do because it took me two and a half years for you two to get on the radio. You would never have that chance. They wouldn't be here today 
if if the record label and um, and the publishing company and everybody behind them had enough faith in them, they were into Ireland for a quarter of a million pounds in debt on purely on tour support before they broke. Now, when they reach the level that they are now, the record company makes a phenomenal amount of money out of them, as does the yes. artist. But, you know, most people would have dropped them and just put it down to a tax loss if there was ever an opportunity of that. But in those days, breaking acts to the level of what they broke pays the head office bills for every other act. But it allows you to bring and develop artists in a very genuine way. So, you know, people get used to, you know, they see them a bit on the TV, they listen to them, they pick up, they pick up on the radio, and then they go see them. And it was, you know, incredibly satisfying. I always used to get a buzz when I got in the car and turned the radio on. Whatever I was doing, if I was going shopping or if I was going to a gate or if I was just driving around generally in my job, any time I heard somebody that I was, you know, I was um, representing on the radio because I thought, you know, you, you really did play a part in it. And it was all kind of a team effort, you know, the record company, the artist, oh, yeah. the manager. Yeah. The promoter, the DJ, the, the radio station, every media outlet. And, and also I was doing regional press, so I could go into the Manchester Evening News and tell them that Piccadilly Radio was playing this record. And I'm always a great believer in, in, in building bands out of, out of um, locally, so you break them out of their own hometown. And that's something that's happened with a lot of artists over the years, you know, even from the Springsteens of the world way back in the day, you know, to break their territory and then you know, look for recognition elsewhere is always important. But, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm a kind of a history lesson here, you know, but that's how it's, that's the answer to your <laughs> Well, question. no, that's, that, that's, that's why we've got you on the show today. We're, we're, uh, we're talking here on iHeartRadio and AMFM 24-7 and Talk America Live with uh, the fantastic music industry professional, former music promoter Tony Michelettis. He has been one of the UK's foremost record promoters and undoubtedly one of the best. You, too, had the pleasure of working with him. Uh, it was those crucial formative years that were grateful for the uh, passionate belief that Tony showed in the band and the personal and professional relationship that was built. It was also uh, pleasing to see the hugely successful career he built off the back of the work he did with U2 and the caliber of acts he's continued to work with. And uh, you you know Tony. He is fantastic. He's worked with everybody. Peter Gabriel, David Bowie. He's got a great book, Insights from the engine room, and uh, he's a music industry professional. Check out TonyMicheletti's.com. And uh, Tony, talk to me a little bit about working with Peter Gabriel. Well, it's funny, actually, because I'll be the first to admit that I didn't, um, I didn't come through that era of, of the what I call the kind of artsy-fartsy uh, art school bands in the UK. I wasn't a great fan of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Nice, and Genesis, and all those people. And, and at the time, I, Peter Gabriel was just this guy who used to wear flowery hats on his head and be the lead singer with Genesis. And I heard Salisbury Hill, and I liked it and stuff. But I worked with Peter Gabriel around his Games Without Frontiers third record. And ever since the moment I met him, worked with him, and saw his show, I've been a huge Peter Gabriel fan. Yeah. Because I think he's a he's a genius and he's a brilliant artist. And, and what I love about him is he, he he's constantly evolved. I mean, I find that artists like Gabriel and and Bowie are kind of so more in a, so much more innovative than anybody that's really around today because they're, they're not scared to kind of push out a little bit and run the risk of having an unsuccessful record and potentially lose a core audience, which, of course, they don't for that very reason. 
instead of churning out the same record for 20 years, they kind of push out and they make <laughs> records that they're satisfied with. I mean, that, I think that is the greatest thing of, in artistic integrity. You know, I'll make a record that I want to make and I hope you like it. So Peter Gabriel was a, was a, was a great guy to work with. I actually, one of my funny stories is uh, running out of gas with him on the motorway in England and, uh, and ended up in the, this industrial park. And it was in the early days of, of kind of cell phones and stuff and having to phone the station and say, oh, we've run out of gas, you know. But Peter was great. I mean, we were sitting there giggling about it, you know. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him live for a good few years, but he's been very instrumental in creating um, his kind of... Um, he's got a studio, which bands like New Order and people have recorded, the whole real-world concept, which was him. And um, he's been involved in a lot of businesses over the years. He's a very entrepreneurial guy, um, and he still puts on um, fantastic shows. And, of course, he's in his 60s now. All these guys have got their pensions now. They're kind of kicking that <laughs> in the kicking, like they always did. And, and Bowie, right until his last day, he, he, he released a record the weekend of his death. I mean, he, he didn't have time to die until he finished his record. He orchestrated <laughs> his own death. I mean, it's you amazing. know, these, these people are like a rare breed. I mean, I'm so proud to have had the opportunity to... Um, I mean, I would have been happy having their records in my collection, but to work with them, I, I, I don't use the word lightly, but was a real privilege. Tony Micheletti's with us today. Uh, well, and, and that's the thing, and we're learning a heck of a lot uh, from you about the music industry today, and uh, my co-host John Mosier has, uh, has arrived. John, listening to uh, Tony here, I'm sure you've probably got some questions, because I know you're a big music guy. Well, I was like a big fan of the 80s. It's like um, I loved... Gabriel's Sledgehammer is one of the things that really got me going in the music. Um, part of it was the music behind it, and the other thing was the video, but it was just so unique and everything. It was like the 80s had a lot of um, influence from people that were part of groups in the 70s and went out solo, like he was saying. They got out of their comfort zone and weren't afraid to. I agree totally, because Gabriel's one of the few artists that has made um, a greater success as a solo act than as the singer of a band, and that invariably doesn't happen. You know, if you look at the David Lee Roths of the world and the Ian Gillans, who left kind of major bands. I mean, Zeppelin was a little different with Robert Plant. They kind of split up. But a lot of people that go out, I mean, the sum is always greater than the parts, I think. But when you have artists like Gabriel, who, who are natural kind of leaders, I mean, artistically... Genesis would never have gone the way that Gabriel did. And, of course, Phil Collins made a, a great success of it as well, but more in kind of the pop arena, I think. Now, I know it's, this is going to sound kind of weird coming from me, but it seemed like the 80s had an influx of British or, you know, European um, bands that people separated off. It didn't seem like anybody, like in a U.S.-based band, like when Steve Perry tried to go away from Journey, he really didn't do that good. Like you said, David Lee Roth, when he tried to separate from Van Halen, did all right, but didn't do that great. It just seemed weird how it was like everybody from like the British or the European market were the ones that were succeeding in that. That's an interesting point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, I mean, there were ones that didn't. I mean, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But, you know, fans like, I mean, for instance, Roger Waters still has a career. But, you know, the, the, the kind of... Um, the, the, the Pink Floyd continued in a way. But, you see, the thing is, what I love about bands like Zeppelin, John, is, is that, um, you know, when John Bonham died, that was the end. I mean, you know, yeah. how do you replace a guy like that? I mean, it's not even if Keith Moon had been around, you could have put him in Led Zeppelin. I mean, 
And it, it was kind of, it still is, I mean, people, you know, there are more people buying Led Zeppelin records now that weren't even born when they split up. So to create that legacy, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in, I mean, Jethro Tull has been kind of going on forever. And, and Ian Anderson is kind of, I'm sure he's got his sons in the band now and stuff. It's only him. I mean, I'm sure half the world thinks Jethro Tull is Ian Anderson, but it's not the band. It's, um, you know, it's what's left. It's one guy. And, and, um, uh, and that happens a lot because there's, you know, it's funny actually because the whole tribute band thing is the band's gone, but the tribute bands make a great success. I went yes. to see the British Pink Floyd myself the other day. It was, uh, <laughs> it's, it's incredible to think. Um, but yeah, but it is, it is interesting because a lot of those bands, um, you know, they, they, when the band's kind of over or if artistically you're not on the same page, you have to go out. And I think Bowie and Gabriel and people like that never had any fear that they, they wouldn't kind of reach an audience that they knew that was there. Yeah, Bowie was really interesting because he not only did that, but he got into film too and was quite successful also. I think Bowie is the exception to any rule and always will be. I mean, if you <laughs> yes. look at David Bowie from fashion and art and music and, and film and everything, even even the whole mind thing which have, which influenced him in the early days, he saw that, that a pop career was a great vehicle. But if you look at what he did, even on a, on a cultural level, for you know, in the 70s, the kids who were struggling with their sexuality, there was David Bowie out there totally. I yeah. think he's kind of... Um, you can call them thought leaders, visionaries. They're far more than rock stars. I mean, Bowie is, for me, the, the greatest um, artist of our generation and probably ever, in my mind, because yeah. I saw it firsthand, but, I mean, it, it, you know, I, it didn't even matter when he did his Tin Machine project with his band and he was just part of the band. It didn't work, but I didn't care. You know, he did <laughs> what he wanted to do. Um, did you ever have any dealings with, I know this is going to be a little bit obscure for some people, but... um. I'm like a fan of the 80s, but it was a band that was real successful in the 70s, came back in the 80s. Did you ever have any dealings with Slade? I became a huge fan of theirs when they came around with Runaway. Slade? Loved him. Oh, my God. I tell you this, <laughs> Noddy Holder is, uh, I'd call him a friend. I never worked with him, but I think they were, they were like, they were kind of like the, the kind of skinhead, glam rock band they did i didn't know how, how well they did here i mean they're still like merry christmas everybody i mean god knows what noddy holder <laughs> royalties are off that noddy holder did a radio show on the same radio station that i did mine and i was in charge of the piccadilly radio cricket team and noddy holder was in my team so the answer to your question is yes but it's probably not the answer you were looking for <laughs> oh no it's just cool because i mean i became noddy. a huge fan of theirs so Noddy is a great guy, and uh, an absolutely amazing salt-of-the-earth human being. And uh, it, what, what Slade did, John, were, were phenomenal. I mean, they were, they were, they were total fun. I mean, they, they used to do a show here, Top of the Pops, regularly with all the hits and things. And um, Come On, Feel the Noise was covered by Oasis, if you remember. I mean, they had kind of anthems, and they, they kind of had that, um, that rebel-rousing kind of, you know, all the kids would kind of you know, be totally into them. And, and um, there's a legacy. That's a really interesting... Um, I've, never, I've never had that question, but it's great, because you're right. I mean, I love bands that, that make a difference, and, and Slade de definitely did. And, um, and, they re and, and they came up with some great, catchy songs, and that's what pop music is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
that 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 is amazing. It is uh, Tony Micheletti's. He's with us today. He's uh, talking to us about all sorts of different things, just sharing his uh, incredible music history. He's a top music industry professional, former music promoter. He helped get uh, Peter Gabriel, David Bowie, U2. He's worked with REM. Um, he's got this great book insights from the engine room he's also got to let the good times roll now uh you you've got these great books uh tell us a little bit about working with rem what what was that like well rem i kind of worked with but i didn't work with them to the extent that i did with the likes of of bowie and um and you two and people like that because they were an american band so they would come into the country and do the tour but they wouldn't always be available to do um, regional radio interviews. and stuff. But I did have Peter Buck and Mike Mills in on my radio show live. They did the show, in, and, I, and in those days, I used to do a Sunday night um, from 11 p.m. till 2. And they did a show at the Manchester Apollo, uh, which I actually went to see. And then I rushed into the radio station and quickly kind of, you know, wiped the sweat off my face and kind of went on the radio. And then they turned up like 40 minutes later, and I had him in for the rest of the two hours. And they were great because they were a good interview. I had, I had Peter Buck introduce the Midnight News and stuff, <laughs> and I've still got the recording somewhere. That's but I didn't awesome. physically take them on. Pro- <laughs> I didn't take them on promo tours because they didn't do a great deal of that. Because um, when when they were kind of when I was working with them, I was working with them in their very early days with IRS and um, uh, Reckoning was the album, um, and and it wasn't kind of like you know they they hadn't reached kind of household name status then so um i didn't really get to know them that well i got to know them on the radio show and they were great and, and um my radio show was like two years old and, and mike mills phoned up to wish the radio show happy birthday and stuff they're great guys and i thought they did um michael stipe was um was quite amazing um front man i did see michael stipe at a cold play gig would you believe in tampa about <laughs> seven or eight years ago um, but yeah, but they were. Um, I think the drummer left in, in the end, and they kind of. I'm, I'm not sure if they'll, if they're done or they're not done. Uh, they haven't. They've been kind of, you know, quiet for a while. But maybe they'll pop back and do something. But they were a great band. I, I loved them as a fan. Now, now you worked with uh, with you two a lot. That 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 was that was kind of your. Uh, Kind of, kind of, kind of yeah. one of the big names. Um, in the early days, what was it like trying to get their music on the radio and uh, all the hoops and different things that you had to jump through to get them gigs and things like that? Well, I didn't get them gigs, but I did get them radio and TV. I got them in the first radio session, and I got yeah. the first um, TV outside of um, their hometown, Ireland, and out of Dublin. Um, no, out of Ireland, really, their home country. But um, the thing with you two is, is once you meet them, it, it, when I went to see them, I went with a local DJ. I wasn't on the radio myself then, but he, he was kind of, um, he was my kind of housemate. He, he used to live with us, me and my wife, for two years. And he used to do the specialist show, and we went along to see them, and they were third on the bill. Um, and that's when we went and met them afterwards. And they came out, and they were really excited because the local DJ was there. But we went home and we talked about them. And the thing is, Bono couldn't reach all the high notes and stuff. And the bass player kind of looked awkward and wasn't very good at all. <laughs> and the Edge kind of had something about him. And Larry was a solid drummer. But they weren't kind of the bee's knees in any way. But they were everything they should have been for a band at that stage in their career. But what they did have was a certain something. And, of course, they had a very charismatic singer. 
So that was the thing that I'd been working with Genesis and Peter Gabriel at the time, and, and that's the thing that tempted me back to Ireland, the opportunity to work with this band that kind of had something about them. I mean, listen, this makes me sound like a music visionary. I worked with a lot of bands you'd never heard of as well, the Lord of, Lord of Averages. Um, but the thing with you too was, was they had a hunger and a desire to meet everybody because they had so much confidence in themselves, not in a arrogant way, but they kind of, you know, they, like Bono says, they came out of yep. punk, but they weren't, yep. a punk, they weren't a punk band. And the interesting oh, yeah. thing about them was, I used to say to the first, sorry? No, I was just agreeing with you, my friend. Go, go ahead. Didn't mean to catch no, off. No, the, fir the, first, the first radio interview I took them into, I, I, it was like a two-hour drive from where we were. I'd have these two excitable kids in the back of the car, Bono and The Edge, and I pulled up in the rain outside a radio station <laughs> called Radio Clyde in Glasgow. And I, um, I looked at him, I'm assuming the windscreen wipers up, I said, listen, guys, I could get you in here because of who I am. Only you can get yourself in here because of who you are. Which basically sent them in. That's pretty awesome. Because they were meeting an influential DJ. He, met, he meant, you know, he had a good following for an audience. You know, people would come up to me. I'd seen it firsthand. I used to go and see bands with him every time I was in Scotland and staying overnight. He became a good friend. But what that happened, what, what that means, is the fact that they go in there um, with confidence, which, they, to be fair, they wouldn't have had anyway, but I wanted to kind of G them up and let them know who the guy was and create a level of excitement that they could just walk in. But you know what happens then is, I, I didn't do it in a, in a calculated way in any way, but then the DJ phones me up afterwards and said, oh, great guys, Tone, any time they're in town, bring them in again, they're fantastic, loved them. So it makes my job easier. Because then, they're not just a catalogue number or some spotty little Irish kids with their first record. They exist in the mind of that person because of who they are. And of course, if you look at like where they've gone on, Bono's just got better and better and better and used that vehicle of, of a world platform, if you like, to be a great communicator on whatever he wants to do, whether it's political or whether it's, it's one foundation or stuff. So that's what rock stars should do kind of influence people and make a difference not just sit there and you know be decadent yeah. and spend money and take drugs <laughs> you know it does happen but they, they were kind of they were <laughs> they happen. were a great role model for anybody because it was down to they never complained about anything you asked them to do they were never late for anything they never turned up wasted or anything i mean in those early days they were actually born again christians they did little prayer meetings before gigs wow that's pretty cool. Mm, there you go. <laughs> okay, I've got, got an obscure question here for you, sir. Um, go on. It was a band that I was really into in the 80s, and they were basically a one-hit wonder over here. I don't know what they were like over there. What was the story of Dexy's Midnight Runners? Oh, yeah, Dexy's Midnight Runners. I mean, they might have been a one-hit wonder, but it was a hell of a one-hit. Well, I'm just saying over here, I love their whole album. You pick up yeah. some gems there, John. Um, they, they were very popular at the time because when you had a number one record like that, that everybody knew, the album sold. There were, I mean, here, I mean, they became huge in America, but do you remember Flock of Seagulls? Yes. I mean, they were kind of known in England for a bunch of dodgy aircraft. And in America, they kind of, they, they became, I mean, they came in that whole period of Duran Duran and Sandel Ballet, you know, all those type of things. And that was the electronic kind of dance crossover thing and stuff but yeah but i mean they they, they it was funny because he he kind of looked really weird didn't he and uh same with soft cell though if you remember yeah I mean, it was just again this kind of awkward weird looking singer that kind of 
you have to go, you have to use that word charismatic again because they have something that separates them from the rest. But they did both of them did have incredibly kind of powerful um, songs that everybody could you know remember in the same way like an Adele comes through but has greater success because yeah. the first record she puts out everybody sings along to. Yeah, I was just. A I huge mean, there was um, there was also. Um, big country i mean they yeah. were they were, weren't the same type of band but you know you come through with one killer track and in you, in those days you could have a gold album with no problem with just one record on the radio that was was a top five single you well everybody over here was looking there. for fresh stuff and that's what we were getting uh with the euro yeah. invasion during yeah. the 80s and they they dub it the decade of one hit wonders but they were maybe one hit wonders over here but not necessarily as overall. That's the reason I was asking, like, you know, the obscure, because I was a huge, huge fan of Dexys. Yeah, Dexys were great. I, I mean, they had, like, they toured, and I think they had probably a few years out of it, but I don't think, they, they never reached anything like, come on, Eileen, nothing like that um, statue, because uh, that's the problem, though, John. When you have kind of a hit of that level, I mean, it's downhill in a way because you've got to come up with something as good as that. <laughs> and and it's hard, you know, it, it's really hard. Yeah, there are people who have done it, but there are plenty of people that are recognized for one song. But it, it, it kind of got them a little bit of a career and, and, and made them a living for a good few years because nowadays in the days of, like, you know, gold stations and, 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 you know, AM stations playing hits and stuff from way back when, I mean, those records get... I mean, we were talking about you know, Slade and Noddy Hold. I mean, God knows, I'd love to see his publishing checks for every okay, Christmas yeah. time. <laughs> come, the end of, come the end of the spring and see how many stations played Merry Christmas, everybody, and still willing another <laughs> 20 years. They, they're kind of like, you know, they're like stairway to heaven, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yes, yes, it is uh, Tony Micheletti's. He's with us today here in our broadcast. Now, um, you, you're, you've often been... Uh, known as sort of a miracle worker um, <laughs> with getting with getting bands on the radio and getting them on TV and helping them along. What well, Was there any bands that you just tried your damnedest and you just couldn't get them anywhere? Yeah, there, there's been a few. I mean, <laughs> it's just, I think a lot of the thing with music as well is, is timing. I mean, you know, sometimes a band will come out and they'll be kind of ahead of their time. I mean, it's funny, really, because I, I watch a lot of kind of nerdy rock documentaries on Netflix or Amazon Prime or YouTube videos and stuff. And, like, Kraftwerk was so influential for so many reasons, for so many artists. And still, I mean, I watched them. Um, uh, there's a thing called The Defiant Ones that's on HBO now, which is Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. And Dr. Dre was talking about Kraftwerk, you know, like a hip-hop artist like that. And this quirky kind of German band from the middle of the 80s. Um, but yeah, but I mean, there was a band from Manchester called The Distractions. I mean, I have a particular favourite band from my own hometown called The Chameleons, but for me, were the, um, were the kind of stadium band that never were. I mean, I worked the Stone Roses in, in um, their first record, and uh, they became great on a kind of cult level, if you like, but um, they were over and done in their first album, but I thought they could have been one of the biggest bands to ever come out of um, England. They kind of came and did Madison Square Gardens and all that just recently, but it took like 18 years of a gap in between. Um, but yeah, there was, there was, um, you put me on the spot here, there's, there's probably, <laughs> um, there's probably a few, and uh, 
you, you can't take those things personally because you go in with all the enthusiasm that's genuine because, you know, when I was a kid and I'd go and buy records at weekend in Manchester with my pocket money and then with my first paychecks, I'd come home and I couldn't wait to get my friends back into my place to listen to the stuff that I'd bought and I just hoped they hadn't bought the same records because I couldn't wait to turn them on to it, you know. And that's the same when you, we called them record pluggers in, in the UK. That was the same for kind of a record plugger. You would take your record to radio and when somebody picked up on it and, um, you know, you have personal relationships then. Those guys would phone me up and say, oh, look, this, I'm playing it on Saturday or um, this is going on the playlist next week. I mean, now it's, you know, it goes through like playlist committees and all this and then you get an email yes. with the playlist and it's either on or it's not. So those relationships that you built with people, like I said to you, my, my, my kind of tastemakers who were also my best friends in radio, um, it taught me a lot about knowing what records professionally I'd want to pick up and promote. Yes. But there's, yes. there's probably, and my, my career was pretty long, so there's, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm busking and swerving a bit around, body swerving the, the answer to your question, guys, but I can't often... I mean, it'll come to me probably when we're done, but um, <laughs> there, were, there, were, there were a few. In, in fact, in Island Records, there were... Um, Island Records had a lot of artists like Steve Winwood and Robert Palmer and, and who went on the radio but didn't really have big hits, but they had great radio hits. And those, yes. those artists sold a lot of records. So if you ask most people, I think Steve Winwood had a bunch of hits because they heard so many songs on the radio. You know, while you see a chance and and Valerie and all those stuff. And also in America, I mean, that's why... I mean, Richard Branson signed Winwood to Virgin when he was floating the companies for his airline because he was that a hot property. But he wasn't kind of a, a, a top five um, singles artist. Well, and see, that that is... That, that is you're, you hit it on the head. <laughs> you, you hit it on the head. We've got Tony McLeodys yeah. with us today. He joins us live now. Uh, you, you you mentioned some some of the folks that uh, that 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 had good radio hits. They might not have been, you know, big deals here or there. And uh, one name that you brought up, which I think is. <laughs> Which is amazing that you went through the list and, and, and you were talking about because one of the guys that I absolutely loved his music in the eighties and uh you, you, you brought the name up and, and I'm sitting here going, Oh my god <laughs> Robert Palmer. Um yeah. that, that 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 that's a heck of a deal. Tell me about the some of your memories of Robert Palmer, some of his music and everything over there. Well, sadly, Robert Palmer died very young. I mean, he's quite an introvert guy, and, and he lived out in, in Europe, you know, so he wasn't yeah. around that much. Yeah. Chris Blackwell personally signed Robert Palmer himself, so they had a great relationship. He he would produce his records out in Nassau. Um, and Palmer came up with, I mean, if you remember that... Um, um, oh, song escapes me, but the... What, Simply irresistible. To love my, my girlfriend who was just reminding me of it. The video, which was so kind of... I mean, MTV were all over Probably it. Probably simply irresistible. I mean, he was an innovator in his way. I mean, he, yeah. he, I mean, all the girls loved him because he was a great-looking guy. You know, he couldn't dance the same anything. You know, <laughs> but his songs were, were really good. And he had a great voice. And um, But yes, I, I went to see him when he was playing live quite a few times. But um, yeah, I mean, there was there was... He was he was kind of shy, and he he did have a drug problem, you know, which kind of yeah. you know was was the downfall of him in the end day. But I mean, he he kind of 
he lived the rock star life. If I'm not condoning it for obvious reasons, because you know, it, it, it yeah. was, I mean, he was he, he still had a lot in him, and I I know it affected Chris Blackwell when I mean both Bob Marley and Robert Palmer dying so close to each other was was devastating for for the guy who started out in records because you build up like with the with the guy who runs the record company, you build up you know really strong relationships with these people, and you see them flourish and grow because of. I'm not taking the credit for Robert Palmer. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, same with Chris Blackwell because there's an artist that, that some people couldn't have worked with because he wasn't kind of... I mean, some artists go out and do everything and make other people's job because a lot of record companies now, I mean, they have to be able to... Uh, I mean, that's why they try and, you know, create artists to make records that they can market easier um, rather than leaving the artist, you know, their own, their own ability to, um, to make the records they want to make. Um, with the odd occasional radio mix. It's a hell of a deal. We've got uh, Tony Micheletti's with us today. Uh, John, do you have any more questions for for our guy here? Because I know you're like a you're 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 a musical uh, like an '80s freak. Yes, yes. I very much was. But <laughs> it's like I was saying earlier, you know. And he Sorry, mentioned this was a good time because you mentioned the, um, the you know the, the kind of like with you especially what you were saying that the feeling I get is there was just this kind of explosion of hair bands so if you weren't into hair bands where did you go so kind of England wasn't a bad place to go for some of those interesting <laughs> bands you mentioned is that right yes you know but it was it was so weird because there was such a resurgence of some of the bands from the seventies that were kind of you know maybe more obscure over here but they um, you know they had some play but then they just got this boom, like, just like rocket attached to him during the 80s over here because that's what everybody's looking for. Same with, like, the Australian and Canadian bands. Yeah. Everybody in the U.S. was looking for somebody different. You know, you had Men at Work, then you had, like, Saga and stuff from Canada, and it was just everybody's looking for something different during the 80s. Oh, bring back those days, please. That was fantastic. <laughs> I think the great thing about music, if you look at, like, you know, Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly, I mean, they kind of invented teenagers, didn't they? Oh, you know, much. Dwayne Eddy and all that. And, and then it, when I love that idea, you know, not idea, but I love that kind of, where music kind of creates culture and, and, and what the kids get into. Because if you look at America and England, I mean, it's always constantly, um, probably up until nowadays, been thrown over each side of the Atlantic. You know, we had the sixties with the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, and then they threw it over to the States, and all the kind of bands were influenced by them. Don't forget, I mean, Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton and all these people—they were all influenced by this Mississippi Delta blues single, uh, blues singers. And if you look at kind of into punk, I mean, punk was just dissatisfied kids who just didn't like the life they were having, and they created revolutions. And you had the Velvet Underground and the Ramones, and then we had the Pistols and the Clash and everything. That's what music's always been about, kind of, you know, creating disruption, if you like. And <laughs> nowadays, disruption. Kind of like, you there know, you pretty go. boys with bad haircuts and horrible jumpers. I don't want to sound like the boring old bloke, you know, but let's face it, I don't think there'll be... Inducting some of these people into the Hall of Fame in twenty years? No, um, no, 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 right. no. <laughs> well, it's disposable. It's disposable. Listen, the monkeys were disposable, but they were fantastic. You know, we still. I love the monkeys. Now, <laughs> yeah, so do I. Pop music. There's always a place. Davy Jones and the boys. Place, you know, you need bands to kind of. Uh, I, I'm a careers guy. I, I, I like artists to develop, and, and like a 
a painter gets better through the years and an actor does. So do rock musicians, but they don't really have that chance to develop now. They kind of don't get that length of time. Where's the next Bob Dylan going to come from? He ain't going to have a bloke playing folk clubs for five or six years and then having a movement around him of a generation of kids growing up loving their records. You're right. You're right. That, that, that. Uh, don't, get, don't get the grumbly old man out of me. <laughs> That's my job, so don't worry. <laughs> now, uh, working working with a lot of the different artists that, that you worked with, did you notice that uh, it was easier, uh, whether it was female or male, to, to get their stuff on the radio or, or, or get them on TV or, or whatever over there? It wasn't, there weren't that many female artists in, in the early stages of my career, and the ones that were were kind of three or four girls in, a, in just a, really just a pop band, you know, who looked good and danced good and had other songs that were given to them, to, written for them, if you like, by, and produced by them. And they were kind of the early days of manufactured artists. The boy bands were the girl bands back then. And then we had an artist, Natalie Imbruglia, who came out of a, she was like a soap star and program in England. Well, it was an Australian program called Neighbours. But she had a great record. Um, but it was hard to, to get people to take her seriously because she was a pretty actress. So it kind of worked against her. Because um, I remember taking uh, her while she was doing a radio interview. I was sat in the head of music room with the manager, who was, who was a woman. And the head of music, I'm sure he wasn't, didn't mean to say it, but he, he said to the while we were in the room, he said, oh, I was really surprised when I heard the record, which basically translate, translated means I expected it to be crap. You know, she's a great-looking girl, and she was a successful artist, so why should she be able to make a good record? So those kind of things, I mean, you know, Joni Mitchell and people were years before, but, I mean, there was nothing like, I mean, kind of then there was Dido and Sarah McLaughlin, and then, of course, Adele and all of the... the the, the, you know, the, whether it's Kelly Clarkson or Katy Perry or Rihanna, there's millions of hugely successful female artists now. But that's definitely a thing of the last 10, 15 years, I think. It's a heck of a deal. Tony Micheletti's so with I was us today. Like, I was working a bunch of ugly blogs, is the answer <laughs> to question. <laughs> now, uh, you mentioned earlier Peter Gabriel and, uh, and Genesis. Um, do you think that in, in, in this era of people throw an amazing amount of money at people, do you think that we'll ever see something like a Genesis reunion or anything just because the money is too much to turn down? Well, I think where the money lies now is in the touring. I mean, you would not be able to buy a city on what Led Zeppelin would get if they went out and toured. I mean, they, I, I, you know, the money that the Stone Roses made for just reforming to do a world tour and stuff was enough for them to retire on. But, I mean, if you look at some of the bands that... I, I don't know that... I mean, I know that'll never happen with Zeppelin because Robert Plant wouldn't do that, you know. They only yeah. formed once for the Ahmed Ertigan Foundation where Ahmed Ertigan, who ran Atlantic Records, died, and he was kind of the guy that basically, you know, did it for them. So they did this one gig, and the internet came down. There were so many people trying to get tickets for the gig they did in London. There are people from Japan, people from coming all over the world. So going back to your question, that, that I think if Genesis did it, and they did it with Peter Gabriel, I think they'd do it for a reason, more for a charity than the money. These people don't make money. I mean, I saw, I saw Roger Waters on TV yesterday, on CNN being interviewed by um, a presenter there who'd, who'd 
was a huge Pink Floyd fan, but he was asking them about the politics and stuff. And I was saying to my girlfriend, we were both watching it, and it was, I said, Mary, this, is, this guy's got so much money, it doesn't really matter what he says or what he does. People will still follow him, and he'll still make all the money so he can do what he wants. But I think Roger Waters plays because he wants to play. I mean, he's in his 70s now, and he still has the fact that he's the guy from the Pink Floyd going for him, and that won't ever go away. So, I mean, there will be people that will be tempted back to do tours and they'll just cash in but sometimes it doesn't work because fans split up for a reason and then you kind of you kind of think everything's over because you're older and smarter and then all of a sudden you've got to live with these guys for the next three months and you end up close <laughs> to killing one another again well, I don't know if Guns N' Roses can get back together you know well, the gun—I mean, he's not the easiest man to work with, is he, Axel Rose? And I think oh, I when he did his own solo <laughs> stuff, and he turned up on stage like two hours later, I mean, you don't really embrace your audience, and people don't put up with stuff like that now. I think—I mean, it's—it's it's so expensive to go to go to gigs um, that really you really have to appreciate your audience. So don't turn up late, and don't you know go off early if you like because it's so much um, <laughs> I, I, that's where a lot of bands are surviving because it's our records do they I mean find me a record store <laughs> well and and see that's the thing like you were talking earlier uh, when we first when we first started uh, chatting with you uh, people don't do albums anymore they do single songs uh well that's another interview guys you know we can talk about that <laughs> definitely that's definitely Trust me, that's a, that's a whole different conversation. I'm happy to do it, but yes. it would take, you know... It would take another stuff. hour, and that's, I know you don't have that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the greed of the music industry, and I've got a yes. lot to say about that, because, you know, it's an industry who, you know, took about 20 years, 30 years to realize there wouldn't be anything as big as the Beatles again, and they would cream it up until they could, and, of course, the internet would have gone away. But seriously, that is that is a, 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 a the, the kind of, you know what happened in the industry. Yes, well, you are opinion, completely but I'm correct. I'm personal opinion based on... I mean, that's why I'm here. I mean, the music industry was falling around the past, falling apart around me, and I hadn't done anything wrong, but I was never going to be able to to retain a, a promotion company with staff and overhead and everything that was, um, that was going on at the time in the way that, you know, I did in the past. So I emigrated. I kind of did my Ziggy Stardust. I came here. <laughs> well, Tony... Uh, so, as... you know, I, I know I know your time is limited. Uh, before we let you go, uh, pretty much just the website and uh, people can can pick up the books on Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah. No, don't buy them on Amazon. What I do, what I like to do, actually, guys, and thank you for the mention on the book is is I like to 